welcome to CityWire Selector podcast, Let's Talk About ESG. I'm Margarita Kirakosian, news editor, and joining me today is Masia Sundbergen, uh, Head of Sustainable Integration at Rubico. Masia, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Rubico does a lot when it comes to engagement, ESG, incorporation, and one of the topics that I find quite fascinating is how you work with palm oil, because not many asset management companies make an emphasis on this specific aspect. So what does it mean to you and how do you implement it practically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe to start off, um, I think uh, when it comes to sustainable investing, yeah, indeed, we often focus on active ownership, voting and engagement, how can we apply ESG data mm-hmm. to portfolios, uh, but there's a whole world of research behind this. And, uh, you know, it's uh, sustainability is not always black and white. And I think palm oil and the way we handle this in our uh, in our investments is, is, is one of those um, examples where it's not black and white. Uh, so palm oil is actually a very important edible oil and it's used in many products. It's including in foods, but also cosmetics and personal care. And um, it's a very efficient uh, commodity. So palm oil accounts for almost 35% of the total edible oil market. I think about other types of oil like sunflower oil or um, um, olive oil. Um, but it only ox- occupies 10% of the land allocated to edible oil production, meaning that it's a very efficient oil. So we cannot say, uh, let's, let's forget about palm oil uh, completely, because it also has a lot of positive attributes. Um, for example, um, 85% of today's global production comes from Malaysia and Indonesia, and mm-hmm. it has lo- brought a lot of economic benefits to those countries. Um, and it has also contributed to infrastructure development and improvement of, of, of household income. So, you know, it's not all bad. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. And, uh, but there are, of course, significant environmental and social issues uh, that go with the uh, production of palm oil. And I think that is where investors should focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, think about deforestation, uh, pollution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also severe labor rights violations, for example. And these mm-hmm. are the things, you know, that we have to research and that we, you know, we have to do something uh, on. Mm-hmm. Uh, how- so when you uh, look at palm oil topic, how do you implement it practically with your portfolios? How do you approach the theme? How do you break mm-hmm. it down? And what kind of engagement is happening with companies? If you yeah. could give examples, that is always yeah. uh, much yeah. appreciated. Yeah. So, so if you if you look at um, uh, what we do, we have a, we have a policy on that, and we say, okay, you know, we want to make sure that companies that are um, that are um, um, operating palm oil plantations that they have certified uh, palm oil plantations. So we are a member of the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil, um, and um, we actually ask companies to have uh, to work towards um, a 50% at least um, threshold of uh, having sustainable and certified plantations. Um, That means that for companies that actually are already below the 20% or even have 0%, if we take like a three to five year engagement horizon, they are never going to reach that target. 
So mm -hmm. what we're actually saying is companies that are below that level, we already exclude from our investment process um, for all of our funds. Mm -hmm. And then what we're saying with the rest, we are engaging uh, and they are, you know, we can invest in them in our, in our, in all of our funds. And if we then uh, in our sustainable fund range, so funds that have a sustainable uh, uh, name, uh, they would actually have to, uh, can only invest in palm oil companies if they have over 80% of certified uh, palm oil. So excluding the worst, engaging with the ones in the middle, also mm -hmm. with the fact that if they don't, um, you know, meet our thresholds, we can no longer invest in them after the, the period has ended. And then um, uh, also making sure that in our sustainable funds, you know, we have the re the leaders in, in this space. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it's always about trying to create that change, trying, trying to create that improvement. And for our invest and for our investment teams, they use this information that we get um, out of these engagement um, um, trajectories with these companies, they can use that actually in their investment cases um, mm -hmm. to understand how companies are handling these issues. Mm -hmm. And what's the difference between how you approach, for example, palm oil engagement with the sustainability focused products, so the greenest of them all, and mm -hmm. the ones that are maybe kind of like ESG informed, but not necessarily kind of like the greenest ones in the range. So what's yeah. the difference between the approach there? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, what we always do in our engagement program, we do that across all of our assets. Mm -hmm. So we don't do it specifically only for sustainable assets, but for, for all of our assets. And the reason is that we want to talk to the laggards, but we also want to talk to the leaders because we want to understand what they are doing well. And then we can use that as an example to talk to, let's say, the, 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 the laggards more in the, in the portfolio. Having said that, there are, um, there are um, uh, issues that are uh, only relevant or very relevant for our sustainable portfolios. Um, let me give you an example. We have thematic funds. And that maybe brings us maybe to the second topic, which is, is mining. But we have thematic funds that focus on e-mobility, um, e uh, smart energies or new energy, smart materials. And there we found that there were, you know, we wanted to invest in companies that, that provided those solutions. Mm -hmm. But it's really a big difference how certain, let's say, solar panels are made when it comes to environmental yes. social. So there, sometimes we have specific uh, topics that we address, uh, for example, waste generation when it comes to, uh, to solar panels, when they become obsolete, what's going to happen to them. Um, so in general, we engage across the whole, all of our portfolios, but sometimes there are specific topics that are very relevant for um, some of the themes that we invest in, in our sustainable uh, strategies. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to engagement on palm oil, how different it is for sustainable funds and traditional funds? If you are engaging overall, but maybe there are some certain kind of higher thresholds, for example, yeah. um, when it comes to inclusion. Yeah, so that, that's what I mentioned earlier, right? So, mm -hmm. we, so we exclude from all of our funds, let's say companies that are below 20% certified uh, palm oil plantations. Uh, we engage with companies um, between 20 and 80% and we want them to reach the 50% threshold uh, within a certain amount of years. 
uh, and otherwise we cannot invest in them anymore. And for our sustainable strategies, we only want to invest in companies that have 80 to 100% certified. Mm -hmm. So they're really, yeah, that's how we differentiate. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to uh, leaders uh, in terms of sustainable palm oil production, what do they do right in your view? So what are, how do the leaders look like basically? Yeah, well, there are um, uh, several things that we ask uh, for uh, from those companies. As, as we say, um, we go for um, certified uh, plantations. Uh, which means that they are not that they are not um, contributing to deforestation. Mm -hmm. uh, they are not, you know, uh, burning down uh, uh, forests uh, to plant uh, plantations. They have good labor standards. What we also think is very important when it comes to um, to agricultural development is that that we want them also to support smallholder uh, farmers. So smaller mm -hmm. farmers tend to have better environmental, um, uh, you know, um, ways of 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 planting, uh, planta uh, holding plantations. But also, of course, that helps this, the the rural society, and it helps economic development in these rural areas. Mm -hmm. So we also um, ask always of these big companies to also support the smallholder farmers. Um, so these are things that 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 we tend to ask, and and of course the leaders are are doing the best, uh, yeah, the best work there. And a very controversial, almost topic for sustainable investing, I think, is mining. Because when you think about sustainability, well, of course, you don't think about uh, mining materials. But then, in the same time, you still need lithium batteries for electric cars, or you need, for example, a certain amount of energy to produce a wind turbine. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to mining, what is your approach to this specific element? And how do you look at it from an ESG yeah. perspective? Yeah, 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 I agree with you. I mean, mining is, is a very complex industry and it's very often seen as unsustainable. And in many cases, you know, there are, there are big issues. So, for example, when it comes to our investment, we exclude uh, for all our funds, uh, for example, com the companies that mine uh, coal with a threshold of 25% of their revenue. And again, in, in our sustainable range, we are more strict and there it's up, uh, above 10% of revenue. Um, because that's that what we say, you know, that's really um, one of the most dirty um, electricity generating uh, uh, fuels. So uh, for us, that is then where we say, you know, and there are um, a lot of other options to generate electricity uh, and, and that's why we say, okay, you know, we want the, the, the economy to move more towards cleaner energy. So let's make sure that, um, that we don't invest in, you know, in, in, in those companies. Um, so that's, that's on the one hand. But then on the other hand, it is very clear that our green future depends on mining materials for clean energy. So in the past, you know, we used to mine um, uh, coal uh, and of course, well, you don't really mine it, but fossil fuels in general. Whereas now we're seeing that if we want to make uh, wind turbines, electrical vehicles, but also mobile phones, we actually need a whole lot of other materials and minerals um, that, that, uh, that should be mined. So the mining industry is, is very relevant for um, you know, having a green future. 
And then what we then do is say, okay, we want to engage again with those mining companies, um, you know, that can make the change to move from from more unsustainable mm -hmm. um, coal to 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 more new minerals and and and, and um, materials that are needed in in, in our green uh, in our green future, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, so how do you identify that those specific companies can make that transition? So where do you draw the line? Because it's easy to just assume that everybody has a chance for redemption or transitioning. But of course, mm -hmm. there is a difficulty of identifying who is actually genuinely going to go for it in the end mm -hmm. of the day. Yeah, yeah. And that is, that is, that is always a difficulty because uh, when you exclude companies based on their current um, operations you make like kind of a picture right same with the co2 footprint you always make a picture so that's why we are saying and the same goes for palm oil you know where companies are just just below a threshold um and we expect them to improve if they are already at very low uh, let's say percentages or high percentages in the case of coal you know they can't transition fast enough for the other companies that we do invest in, we, we will engage with them. We will talk to them about uh, their uh, transition strategies uh, or maybe even other issues that are, um, that are at play, um, like environmental and social other issues that are at play there. And then um, that information is actually um, incorporated in a so-called active ownership profile. That's mm -hmm. a profile that is available to all of our investment teams um, to understand uh, the, the conversation that we've had with those companies and uh, what we uh, what we expect from them and how we believe they manage these issues, mm -hmm. and you have to also think about safety of tailing dams, um, water risk, uh, end of assets. Uh, when what happens when the mine becomes obsolete? How do you handle that as a company? How do you prepare for that? How much money have you set aside? to so all these kind of things we discuss with these companies and then um that is information for our investors and mm -hmm. they can use that uh in their investment so because we always talk about the worst of the worst we always talk about the best of the best but in reality we invest in many companies that are actually very willing to make a transition but you know it's it's hard work it takes time and it's it's not as simple again it's not as black and white as most people want to think Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you place mining companies on that kind of arbitrary spectrum, basically, which ones are kind of like the most promising when it comes to transition towards renewable kind of way of doing things and where the engagement is the hardest and maybe almost kind of like non-effective? Yeah, well, that, that, that is very difficult for me to answer because I can't really go into specific names. Um, but, but in terms uh, of maybe me, types me, of yeah, company, let me give you yeah. yeah I think also uh, it depends very much on where the company has its minds right. Mm -hmm. So if you have your minds in let's say more developed economies, uh, then you probably have more strict guidelines about what you can and cannot do. For example, compared to mining companies that have operations in in developing countries where maybe the regulation is less strict. Um, so that's a difference um, and the, the latter is often maybe companies that are in very different regions where we are not present ourselves uh, you know that those can be of course the most difficult to engage but you never know because sometimes they're very open 
to engaging. Um, so, uh, yeah. How important is it actually to see, meet companies, to like, to see the promises, let's say, and then kind of like meet the people who work there? Yeah, that's a very good question. We always struggle. Uh, so we tend to go and see, which, which helps. We have very experienced engagement people, so they have already seen a lot. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, we don't want to travel too much because that creates another carbon footprint, right? <laughs> Uh, yes. So that's why it's important to have experienced people that understand what's going on on the ground and already have seen quite a lot of, um, you know, things at close hand. Um, and that's also why we often ask if there are issues. Um, we have very strict criteria and we also ask for an independent verification of how things mm -hmm. are being resolved. And that's often someone that is on the ground or we look at, we use information from NGOs that are locally uh, there. So there are other ways of getting, getting that local information that indeed is often needed uh, to, to really get, get, get very well informed. So yeah. when we are looking at different types of mining companies, um, so does it make a difference what kind of metal you are mining, be cobalt or gold or lithium, for example, and how do you engage in those cases, let's say? Yeah, yeah, it does, of course, make a difference uh, where you are mining and also what you are mining. So um, when it comes to cobalt, most of it comes from Congo. So there, you know, there we see that there are several social issues and also environmental issues surrounding that, uh, that are very, you know, important to, um, to engage on. But when it comes to gold um, in certain areas, maybe it's more um, regulated and there are less issues around it. And then we have to, oh, then we have to, uh, you know, engage um, or maybe engage less because these companies are doing better and there are no issues with those companies so we also take that into account in our integration process so to give you an example um, on the credit side uh, our credit analyst looks at at five things like business strategy uh, financial strength the traditional things that a credit analyst would look like and one of the things that they also look like they look at is esg and uh, when they compare uh, the, the mining companies there are several um, topics that they look at, what's most material in terms of ESG, and one of the things is very much the exposure. Where, is the, where does the company have its exposure? Is that, is that only in Australia or is that um, in, in Africa as well? And what kind of types of materials are they mining? And then that is taken into account in terms of the risk assessment uh, of that issuer. Uh, on the credit side. So it has an impact on the fundamental assessment of the company as well. So it's not only engagement, it's also really integrating it into your thought process when you're buying these companies. Masha, one of the interesting topics that you mentioned uh, in regards to ESG integration is biodiversity. And the reason why I find it very interesting is because there is so little data available on this specific aspect. Uh, so how do you approach it and how can you actually get any tangible results given that the data sets are probably underdeveloped at this stage? We know that there are certain important uh let's say uh topics uh, when it comes to to 
to, to biodiversity and that's causing the biodiversity loss. Um, and there are a few uh, elements that are very important and we know that, uh, for example, deforestation is a very important one. So this is where we center our engagement around. Um, so without having, let's say, all the metrics in place, we already know, you know, what are the biggest uh, causes of, of this loss of biodiversity. And there are others, but this is an important one. What, el what else are we doing? In the Netherlands, um, there are several investors that, have, uh, that are collaborating on the Partnership for Biodiversity Accounting Financials mm -hmm. to develop metrics, uh, to create a framework for financial institutes uh, to, to consider and address the biodiversity impact of their portfolio and then across several asset classes. So not only for equity, but also for other asset classes. So that's what we're doing as well. One element of biodiversity that I can think of uh, is that you have to work um, together with other asset managers. So when it comes to, for example, engagement with companies, what is the mm -hmm. first step and how do you engage with other asset managers? to get the best results out of it. Yeah, so I think, you know, collaborative engagement is very important for us. And luckily we're seeing that more and more investors, because uh, we have, we started engaging already in 2005. So that's like 15 years ago. Uh, but, uh, and at that point in time, there were just a few, you know, a few asset managers and asset owners that were really asking questions on sustainability to companies. But now we're seeing more and more, um, asset owners and asset managers are really starting to get into sustainability. So that is very helpful because if you do it together, uh, you can make a bigger fist. Um, so with this uh, biodiversity, mostly the way it goes is that um, there are certain, let's say, collaborative platforms. One is the PRI, uh, the Principles for Responsible mm -hmm. Investing. And they have a uh, platform where you can actually, um, you know, work together on engagement. And um, there is also a mm -hmm. biodiversity working group with which we work together to, um, to engage with companies on this topic. In terms of Rubico, why does biodiversity uh, matter for the assets that Rubico manages? So why did you decide to focus on this topic mm -hmm. and why do you think yeah. it's urgent to be addressing it or start addressing it right now with companies? Yeah, there are, I find that there are always two angles to this. One uh, is that, um, and, and, we, and I illustrate that also in, in, my, in my article, so uh, to give, what is the role of the financial industry? Let, let me give you an example. There is research being done by the, the Nederlandse Bank, the Dutch Central Bank, that actually shows that um, 81 billion euros in loans provided by Dutch financial institutions are to high uh, nitrogen emitting sectors. Nitrogen is also an issue, issue when it comes to, uh, to biodiversity loss. And they have 28 billion of exposure to companies that operate in protected or high conservation value regions. And they face potential of mm. stranded asset risks. So on the one hand, it shows the interconnectedness of, let's say, and the role of, of financial institutions in high emitting and, and biodiversity threatening industries. So really causing a problem. And on the other hand, mm -hmm. it, it also uh, highlights the risks 
that we face as financial industry if you know legisla legislation becomes more strict or maybe consumer behavior changes on on these kind of topics so it's always from the one hand the impact that you're making and from the other hand it's the financial risk that you're running and here it might may, may not be specifically targeted yet to specific companies um, uh, but it's but we understand that it's really a, a big issue. Um, I'm not sure if mm -hmm. you have if you un, if you have the um, seen the the research on the planetary boundaries by the Stockholm University. Mm -hmm. um, you know they see um, biosphere integrity as they call it, uh, so extinction of of source of of uh, species, but also biochemical flows like nitrogen and phosphor. Um, which are also leading to biodiversity loss really as has having you know having already breached um the planetary boundaries to such an extent that we don't really know how the system is going to react so this will have an impact on our mm. economies and on our societies and i think not a lot of people are really aware that that the extent to which this is going to become an issue and how fast it can go mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we were uh, to focus on some examples, because obviously it's always a slightly easier to grasp when you know the mm -hmm. immediate impact, let's say. Mm -hmm. Can mm -hmm. you give me an example of an industry or a type of company that can be directly impacted by biodiversity laws? Just to kind of give, give it a little bit yeah, of uh, yeah, I mean, a tangible I mean, feel. Yeah, I think the agricultural uh, uh, industry, uh, of course, um, can have have a big impact uh, with uh, we're seeing that in the Netherlands, for example, that acidification of the uh, of the soil uh, mm -hmm. is causing um, biodiversity loss and causing nature loss, and that's why the Dutch government is becoming much more strict uh, and much more um, strict regulation when it comes to the use of uh, of nitrogen, for example, in 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 the um, in the agricultural sector so the agricultural sector has to adjust has to make costs mm -hmm. has to change uh, because the legislation is becoming more strict so this is a very direct um impact on on that sector uh, because of uh, of this issue um other things of course is the um the a little bit more the cause of, of biodiversity loss is the deforestation that we already talked about that is and that is goes broader than palm okay. oil it is also cocoa natural rubber soy it's beef uh, tropical timber and pulp these are the five high risk uh, crop commodities when it comes to an impact on biodiversity Masia, one interesting thing I wanted to talk to you about um, is your experience integrating ESG because you look back at many years of dealing with the subject. So what are the key takeaways and lessons learned during this period? Something maybe you uh, would like to pass on to people who are just getting their head around this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think already uh, the most important thing I think is having the relevant information. So I think we already talked about that quite uh, quite um, uh, quite a lot. Uh, second of all, you need to have a good framework in place, and every investment process is different. So every investment process requires its own ESG integration framework. Um, let me give you two examples: um, fundamental equity. 
you know, we integrate ESG, material ESG issues, uh, relevant information uh, into our um, valuation models. And we have a very strict framework for that. Um, so for each company that we assess, we write an investment case, we make a valuation model. And in that investment case, we explicitly focus on material ESG issues and how that is impacting our valuation model. Now, when we look at our quantitative equity portfolios, of course, that is a completely different investment approach uh, because that's based on, on factors, uh, financial factors. It's based on models. Um, it's based on large numbers. So we invest in a lot of companies. So what we do there is we integrate ESG by saying we want to be prudent investors. So let's make sure that we always have the same or better ESG score than the benchmark. So we don't run any ESG risks. And also let's make sure that we at least have a footprint um, CO2 emissions that are not worse than the benchmark, that actually better than the benchmark. So it's really about reducing the risk in the portfolio that we are actually you know, investing in companies that have negative, you know, that have uh, you know, very poor ESG scores. And that's always integrated in the model. So if a company has a very, so if two companies have the same score on, let's say, the value factor, the quality factor, and the low vol factor, and that's what the model is based on. But they have, the one is doing very well on ESG and another is doing very poorly, then the, the, the company that's doing poorly will probably have a lower weight in the portfolio or maybe not even be invested in. Um, and the company has a good ESG score will have a higher weight. So those are totally two totally different uh, ways of doing it. And each investment process requires its own framework, but the framework has to be very clear. The input has to be very relevant. And then the third thing is the people. How do you mm -hmm. get people to, uh, to use the framework, right? Uh, so that there were there are two things. One, we develop the framework um, together with the investment team. So there's always one person that is the let's say the champion in the investment team that is responsible for developing and further developing the ESG integration framework. And second of all, that's myself. I do the quality control every year on all of the investment processes to see uh, to assess. Uh, how well they are integrating ESG and to also assess where we can improve going forward. So I think those are the key elements uh, when it comes to integrating ESG. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you are assessing uh, the processes on an annual basis, can you give me an example of where you could like had to go back and maybe revise th something, something maybe mm -hmm. recent, be it credit or equities, uh, just to uh, again give it a bit more practical yeah. application? Yeah. So, so, so we what we do, for example, in our fundamental equity is that we um, that we say, okay, uh, let's say there are three key material issues for a certain company. And that is research that's done by our sustainability research team. Then the analyst and sustainability researcher, they analyze how company is actually, you know, um, uh, um, handling these issues. How are they managing it? And then does it lead to higher sales growth or maybe lower sales growth or higher profit margins or lower risk? And that is then applied to, um, to the um, to the valuation. But then of course, you know that, um, you know, for climate, for example, that's a very important topic. 
uh, how much should you then incorporate uh, in higher sales growth or lower margins because they have to invest to become more efficient so we're working on improving there to see specifically on climate how we can actually um, make that more tangible and how we can actually come up with a model to make sure that we do it uh, consistently across all uh, sectors and this mm -hmm. is a working group that is working on that to see how we can can improve there something else is that we for example on the credit side we have implemented um, not only looking at the material ESG issues but also implementing looking at the how a company contributes to the sustainable development goals for example um, and that is then also part of the mm -hmm. investment case so these are things that we tend to improve over time and the uh, mm -hmm. for, for the, and quant the yeah oh. sorry mm -hmm. yeah for the quant strategies we um, until recently we only optimized the ESG score but now we also take into account the environmental footprint. So how much, as I, as I just mentioned, how much um, CO2 emissions are there, how much waste is produced and how much water is used. We also, this is something new that we've, that we've set that, that target for, for all of our quantitative strategies. So that's also a, you know, a development, a new development. Mm -hmm. So ESG integration can be difficult for certain areas and the one that I hear about most is probably alternatives or systematic strategies. So in your experience working with the whole Rubica range, where do you find the ESG uh, integration most challenging and how are you kind of bypassing the hurdles that are in your way? Mm, most challenging? Uh, yeah, we, we have been doing it for quite some time. So I think mm. most challenging is probably for us now is uh, some emerging markets like, and also China, where you have less information and specifically mm -hmm. less information in, in, in English. Uh, because if you want to really do sustainable integration very well, you need to be able to and that's why you have all these ESG research providers because they somehow set a standard and they measure how companies mm -hmm. are doing compared to their peers. Now, if you read a, a sustainability report of a company, um, you know, it's very difficult if you only read that report of that company that you're analyzing to really have KPIs to measure to, because I think it has to be objective. You have to measure how a company is stacking yes. up to another company. And of course, what they're writing in their, in their sustainability report, they're never going to say, you know, guys, uh, you know, we have an issue here or we think we can improve there. No, they will always say we're, we're doing it very well. So uh, course, if yeah. you don't have that, yeah, if you don't have that, that yardstick uh, in some countries, that's difficult. Um, and, and that's why a lot of data providers are increasing their coverage in those areas. And we are doing a lot of fundamental research. So we have 15 um, sustainability researchers with each have their own sector uh, and industry mm -hmm. uh, coverage. And if our Chinese team wants to invest in a certain company, uh, but there's not a lot of information uh, in the traditional ways, then we have to do a fundamental research ourselves. And that is the, I think, the most challenging for now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So it's more kind of country-wise, region-wise, um, and less about specific subsectors investment-wise. Is that correct? Yes, because we currently have, I think it's about ninety over ninety percent of our assets, and we invest in equities, credits, um, uh, uh, government bonds, uh, and then we have some derivative strategies. Um, almost more than 90% of that we, we have covered with ESG integration. But in some local areas, it's more mm -hmm. difficult. And then, of course, when it comes to, for example, savings products or um, like savings accounts or um, products that are, use derivatives like interest rate hedges, for example, well, there I don't really see how we can actually implement ESG integration. It doesn't make sense. It's also not possible. Uh, why is that the case? Uh, why, why, is, uh, why is it so difficult with uh, derivatives, for example? Uh, well, uh, if you look at interest rate derivatives, they, you know, how are you going to make them sustainable? I don't know. How are you going to integrate ESG? We have looked at, um, for example, looking at the counterparties. So if you have an over-the-counter derivative you can look at the counterpart mm -hmm. and say you know how sustainable are they uh but most of those are cleared anyway so yeah. there is no counter well the counterparty is the clearing house so really yeah i don't see how we can make those more sustainable it's very difficult we did make the underlying portfolios uh, where yeah, we no, integrate esg so we integrate esg in mm -hmm. in the underlying government bond portfolios but if you have if you have an interest rate hedge for a Dutch pension fund or a German pension fund, they would normally invest a large part of their port, uh, government bond portfolio in in euro uh, government bonds. So either Germany or Fran France or the Netherlands. So again, there you know ESG integration is really not going to make that big of a difference. But we do do it. Um, Mm -hmm. But you always have to think, you know, is and, it relevant? Mm -hmm. um, and when you're talking about, again, sovereigns in Germany or France, uh, I, I think I know the answer to that. But why is it kind of like maybe not sensible to uh, achieve kind of like full ESG integration with sovereigns in uh, those countries specifically? Yeah, so we do, we do have a country sustainability ranking that we use in our, um, in our um, macro team. Uh, and um, we rank about 150 countries based on many, many different um, indicators coming from IMF, World Bank, you know, Freedom Rights Index, all these kind of indicators we use. And then we have a, an ESG score uh, and that's built up out of all of these indicators and it has, um, you know, uh, it, it, it comes up with a ranking. and. Most of the European countries, you know, they rank quite highly on that index. Um, what we tend to look at is the change in the um, in the ranking, mm -hmm. because that tends to give the the, mm -hmm. mo the most insightful information. And we have quite a lot of examples where we saw a country sustainability ranking deteriorating, and that really gave us, you know, more confidence in in the in our analysis that we had already done on that on that country. For example. 
the recovery of Ireland after the Euro crisis mm. or the deterioration of Turkey and specifically where we looked at the currency exposure that we had and um, it really helped us to, uh, to reduce that even further. Um, so that is really helping us, but you know, the differences in Europe are not that big and, and they don't go, you know, they don't deteriorate or improve so much, um, you know, in this, in this time frame that we're looking at. So that's mm -hmm. why it makes less sense if you're comparing Germany to France to the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Because like with emerging markets, you can clearly see the pathway yeah. where the improvement can be achieved and make a yeah. difference with ESG mm -hmm. integration, let's say. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mathieu, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. You're welcome, thanks for the interest. <laughs>